Hey everyone, welcome back to Tempo Talks. My name is Aaron. Just wanted to drop in for a quick note before we launch into this episode with Noah Drotti. Um, this was recorded quite some time ago, shortly after Noah completed the marathon project. Uh, but just due to some unforeseen circumstances, we were not able to release the episode until today. Um, definitely on our end, not on Noah's. So uh, we apologize for the delay in getting this out. But either way, it's a fun conversation. Um, but just due to the nature of the fact that it is delayed, uh, there is some dated information in the episode, most notably uh, of which is that Noah is no longer running with Saucony. Um, and so we do talk about Saucony a lot in the episode and the shoes and things of that nature. Uh, he is no longer a runner for Saucony. So just wanted to put that out as a disclosure to let you know. Um, but either way, we had a lot of fun talking with Noah. Uh, it was a great conversation. We talked a lot about the marathon project and about other things going on in his world. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram at Noah underscore Drotty and on Twitter at I Built the Ark. And um, also just wanted to let you know that he's also a member of a band called Barry Mia. And on March 5th, a few days from now, uh, they will be releasing a single on iTunes, Spotify, I think pretty much anywhere uh, music is distributed. So check that out. They're talented guys. I can't wait to hear the song in full. Um, but yeah, with that, we appreciate you joining in and listening to this episode. Please follow along and feel free to share it uh, wherever you distribute your information on social media or whatever the case may be. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy this episode with our guest, Noah Drotti. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Tempo Talks podcast. My name is Aaron, and I'm here with my co-host, Ryan, and our guest, Noah Drotti. Welcome Hi. to the show, man. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We're super, super pumped to have you. Uh, you're one of the most fun people to watch in the sport of running, in my opinion. And uh, and I'll be honest, I haven't been following you that long. I, you know, I kind of was exposed to you recently, but uh, I was super pumped that you were willing to come on and talk to us, uh, especially with all that's gone on recently. So we're grateful to have you here. Yeah, thanks for the kind words. So uh, we dug into the depths of the internet, searching for all kinds of stuff about you, and uh -oh. uh, and Ryan pointed <laughs> my Ryan pointed my attention. Somehow I missed your podcast. I, I didn't find that, but uh, Ryan pulled my attention to two interesting videos. Uh, I'll let you explain those, Ryan. Well, let's just say that it's very rare for um, runners to be featured in what would probably be national TV commercials. And uh, over the last few years, Noah, you've been in number one, a Pizza Hut commercial, which mm -hmm. was amazing. Uh, and then also that, uh, the Saucony commercial was, I, I couldn't stop laughing throughout the commercial. It's just, it's amazing. The character that you play, the people popping out of, uh, of nowhere to run towards you. And by the way, I'm, I want everybody out there listening to go watch these commercials. We're going to link to them in the show notes so you can kind of see what we're talking about. But, um, I don't know. I want to ask, you know, like which one was your favorite? How did, and I want to know how the Pizza Hut one even came to be. What's the backstory there? Yeah, the Pizza Hut one was kind of strange, and I definitely felt like kind of an imposter for doing that. So they they were doing this program um, called the Pizza Hut All American, 
And so they had this guy, the host of this series, and he, in a, in one calendar year, attended every NCAA Division One championship. And so for each of those, they would link him up with an athlete who they thought would be like a fun representation of that particular championship. And so they chose me for cross country, which was kind of a weird choice because I didn't even run Division One cross country. Uh, but they, <laughs> but they picked me, um, and so we went out to Terre Haute and. We uh, there was a bunch of like weird gimmicky stuff like we renamed Terra Haute, which is where the meet takes place. We re- renamed it Terra Hut, like officially for the day after after <laughs> Pizza Hut, which is you know just kind of like ugh. But uh, and then yeah, that commercial, which um, the idea is like who can can the Pizza Hut delivery guy deliver a pizza faster than Noah Drati can run a 10k, and so it's like him getting the pizza ready and me running on the course. And uh, I have no lines. I, I they they gave me one line, which is when I finished, I was supposed to say, "Oh, you know, I lost again or something." And but <laughs> but they cut the line, and so it's <laughs> I have got no lines. But that's how it came about. It was just it's very strange, but it was a lot of fun. I'm so, holding in, just rolling in laughter over here, thinking about you filming that. And I mean, it was, I was watching it and you know, like when you watch like movies, um, when you watch movies and people run, you can tell when people are actual runners and when they're kind of like faking it and doesn't look real, especially us with experience as runners and everybody else out there. And I mean, clearly you were like jogging along the course and then you sprinted like as hard as you could through the finish line <laughs> at the very end, the cl- middle school kick, uh, classic. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. They even what, gave me, what? um, they painted custom pizza hut spikes for me, which I don't know if you remember <laughs> seeing those, but that was pretty awesome. I still have those. My thing is I've ordered, I don't know how many pizzas from pizza hut and there's never been one delivered in under six minutes <laughs> or under, under however many minutes uh, it took. So that's crazy. Yeah. It was, yeah it was, I guess it was a good time. One other question about the Saucony commercial was, was that really you doing wheelies in a salt flat on your dirt bike? I didn't know if that was a stunt double or if that was legitimately like you had the talent to like be doing wheelies down that. Oh, it's absolutely me. No, (laughs) no, it's a, they, uh, it's absolutely not me. It's a, uh, they found a guy on Craigslist with a dirt bike (laughs) and, uh, he showed up that day. And then they, I mean, he's maybe a foot shorter than me, but you can't really tell on the bike and he's got a, a wig on. Uh, <laughs> so it was a stunt, probably the only time I'll ever have a stunt double. It was like Steven Tyler meets Clint Eastwood meets, I don't know, Evil Knievel. It was so weird. <laughs> it's a I mean, I loved it. <laughs> the the point the point of commercials though is to like you remember the brand right and I specifically remember that from a couple of years ago and that it like I didn't even have to go research it it was just something that I was like oh I need to search up that commercial again and get reacquainted and that was I mean kudos to whoever at marketing at Saucony thought that up um, and maybe you had a hand in thinking up the idea for it too Noah. <laughs> No, I was just along for the ride, but it's definitely one of those things you're you're watching. You're just like, what's happening, and you don't understand it. <laughs> that like, there's just an eagle at one point. Like, none of it makes any sense, but you like, you look back and are like, actually, that was kind of cool, even though there was no rhyme or reason to it. Oh man, that's, that's awesome. great. So, so after running, will we see you? You know, on the silver screen, will you be? You know, tearing up the movie scene or the TV circuit, <laughs> or how's it going to go? Um, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I I do like doing those things. I think I, I have, you know, some ability to do those things. And, and it's just fun. Like, you know, our, our job day to day is pretty, uh, 
normal. I mean, it's, it's pretty boring just going out and running and everything. So anytime we can spice it up with uh, opportunities like that, it's just, just a cool experience. Yeah, absolutely. So you're in Boulder, right? And you're in Boulder right now. Yeah. How long have you, uh, how long have you been living in Boulder? I moved to Boulder in November of 2015. Okay. So it's been a little, it's been a little while then. And originally from Indiana, Terre Haute, is that where you're from or? I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. So more, more of a city vibe than, uh, than Terre Haute. That's cool. I, I actually went to school in Indianapolis. So I spent just one year there. Um, and it was way too cold. I, uh, didn't enjoy it at all. Almost. All. <laughs> there was, I liked the Colts. I was there. I think that was the first year that Lucas oil stadium opened up. So mm. I always, uh, I always enjoyed following the Colts. And so I went to a couple uh, games at that time as well, but yeah, it's, it's an okay place. I want to run the Indianapolis marathon though. Yeah. The, it's a flat fast one. Yeah. The monumental marathon and half marathon are definitely good places to go to run fast and yeah, I mean, I loved living there. My family and friends are still there, but you know, for what I wanted to do, Boulder was a more conducive atmosphere. For sure. Yeah. So, how has the adjustment to like altitude and living at altitude? I mean, it's been several years now, but was that a big change for you? Um, yes and no. I mean, it's it's going to be a noticeable adjustment no matter what. Um, Boulder's at about mm. fifty five hundred feet, something like that. So it's not, you know, as high up as like a Flagstaff or something like that, but you know, I was lucky that I moved out here and, and transitioned fairly easily. And I, I took to it quickly and just gave myself time to adapt. And so the stimulus worked really well for me in the beginning. For sure. Yeah, I was actually out there myself two weeks ago. I wish I had realized that you lived there, I would have tried to uh, connect. But um, I went out and ran mags. Nice golly that's that's tough i i started on the netherlands side mm. and uh and i guess that's at like around 8300 or, or something right there and my wife had actually went with me parked on the end uh and she was just gonna like sit in the car and read a book and i was just gonna like go run two miles out two miles back and i called her like a quarter mile in and was like you gotta drive beside me i'm just gonna run like a mile and a half and then get in the car because i can't even breathe up here it's crazy but it was a fun like bucket list thing to do as far as running is concerned yeah for sure mags is a iconic road and we go up there you know several times a year my my teammate frank lara ran Ran the whole thing. What did he average? It was like 525 pace starting from the side that you did um, this summer. So I've seen some cool stuff up there for sure. Yeah, yeah, Frank Frank broke like every every Strava segment record up there. I saw that when it when it came through, and I, it blew my mind knowing how hilly it is and then what altitude it's at. Because I mean, he was close. There was miles in there where he was running sub five minute pace as a long run. Of course, now he's run 27 what 44 for 10k paced you at the marathon project, um, last weekend. So amazing. Yeah. Hugely impressive. I would call it a little more than a long run, what he was doing, but it, it <laughs> yeah. was, uh, I mean, it was wild. That's a very tough road. Yeah. So, um, we were curious because we already talked about your involvement in the commercial with Saucony and obviously you, uh, run with them. And, um, Ryan brought up a point that I didn't really realize you were in the 2016 trials, uh, running in a Brooks kit. Uh, is that right? Did I get that yep. right? Yeah. Yep. So, so, um, when did your affiliation with Saucony and begin and kind of, how did that happen? 
Yeah, so the thing I had with Brooks, um, they had a program called Brooks ID, which stands for, I think it stands for like Inspiration Daily or something. It wasn't a real contract, right? I wasn't being paid to run really, but they gave me gear and there were some small bonuses. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't consider myself a professional runner at that time, but it was awesome for where I was in my career to like have free shoes and free clothes and stuff. So you, you, you saw a lot of people wearing that Brooks kit, especially at the marathon trials in 2016, cause that, that was a big program. So, but I, I outgrew that, um, you know, fortunately I continued to run well. And then at that point it, it didn't make sense to be running for free, um, for free basically anymore. And so, um, you know, opportunities opened up and we ended up signing with Saucony in 2017. Yeah. And that 2017 is also when I remember you specifically coming onto the scene, not just from the 2016 10,000 meter Olympic trials, which it's awesome to qualify for sure. And I know you probably left a lot on the table in terms of performance there. Um, But the 2017 New York City half marathon was when I saw you and your time, I think it was 101.48, somewhere, something around there. And I was like, yeah. man, Noah Drotti is here. And especially on the roads, right? I mean, you were really just getting into the longer stuff. So maybe you could walk us through, like, do you think that was your breakthrough? Or, you know, what was your perspective at that time? Yeah, that was absolutely my breakthrough. Uh, making the trials and on the 10, in the 10K and in the marathon were both kind of, you know, dream things for me. But at that point, I was starting to set my sights on like, the potential of being a full time professional athlete. And I was starting to see this potential in my training that hadn't been actualized by my road PRs yet. And felt like, you know, I I have these, uh, I have these like great performances. And I feel like people want to reduce me to being like the beer drinking party guy or whatever, you know, after the trials. And so I was really motivated to go out there and be like, Yeah, I can be that guy, I can have fun. But you know, I'm a badass roadrunner too. And so, you know, that day from the gun, I was on an absolute mission. Um, I thought I could break 62. Um, I ran as hard as I could from the very beginning um, and just wanted to make it my day, which has been the theme of my best days is when I wake up like that. And I'm just like, you know what, this is going to be my opportunity um, and so it was a dream come true, you know, crossing the line in 6148. A lot of Americans have done it since then, um, but not a lot of Americans were doing it when I did it. And so that was, uh, it was really validating. And this was somewhat pre-Super Shoe era, too. I assume that you, you had some Saucony racing flats on at that time. But, I mean, obviously the game has changed with shoes since then. So in, in my mind, I, I take that 101-48 performance and think, wow, like, not not to diminish it anyway, but what could have been possible with the new advances in shoe technology too? Um, yeah, so that's definitely what I. That. That's definitely what I tell my teammates when I'm bragging about that race. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was unsponsored at the time, so I was actually not wearing Saucony, but uh, they oh. were uh, yeah, just normal racing flats. But yeah, nice, nice. Um, I do want to draw a, a personal connection here, Noah, and I you, you probably don't remember it, but. Um, Oh, you remember the effort, but maybe not me. I ran the 2018 Indy Monumental Half Marathon, which yeah. you paced. Um, so I stared at your back for the first eight. I think you dropped out around eight, but you carried mm-hmm. us through it low 450 pace for eight miles. 
and um, ended up finishing fourth running 10406, which was a PR for me at the time. Um, so I just want to, I don't know if I've talked to you since, thank you for doing, like, just, you probably had a workout on the day, maybe you're visiting family around that time, but thanks for jumping in and, and helping us out. I think that's amazing that you're willing to give back to the running community in that way and help, you know, guys out that you, you may not have known before then. Yeah, no, thanks, man. Uh, yeah, I definitely remember that. And I definitely remember you being there. Um, it, it was really special. Just I, I spoke at the expo the day before the race. And so it was cool to be involved in that event. And, uh, you know, I was kind of getting back into my training. So I wasn't ready to like race it full on. But I knew that guys were shooting for that Olympic trials qualifying time. And I was just like, Oh, how cool would it be? Um, to involve myself in that and so I took you guys through eight or eight ish as long as I could and then I pulled to the side and jogged it in the rest of the way but right before the finish I ended up getting caught by uh, a guy I competed against in division three and uh, ran the rest of the rest of the way in with him so it was it was kind of a special day even though I wasn't racing yeah and I mean the connection to your hometown too right I'm sure you like you know the race director probably pretty well or the elite coordinator there his name's escaping mm -hmm. me now. I've emailed him a ton, but um, Matt Eversol. Yeah, Matt Eversol. That's right. Yeah. So, what is that kind of environment as far as like from the perspective of pacing? What does that mean to you as an elite? I, I mean, I guess I could ask both of you guys this. Um, you know, as it pertains to like getting the help that you needed at the mar like at the marathon project, but also being able to give back because we don't traditionally think of running as like a team sport um like you would baseball or basketball or anything like that but is is that the same kind of feel in your opinion you know to to i, I guess a team environment in in our world in this world yeah for sure i mean speaking as a pacemaker it's not something i've done a lot but that was one time it is nice to act kind of altruistically in a sport that is in and of itself very uh selfish and self-interested and so, uh, yeah, it, it was really cool. It's nice to kind of have a purpose other than your own performance goals. And, you know, as an athlete, like specifically, I guess, at the Marathon Project this week, like, you know, those guys were tremendously helpful just in kind of easing the psychological burden of going out at 455 pace, which is a lot um, for us. And we hadn't done it before. And, and one of those pacers was my teammate, Frank Lara, who we mentioned earlier in relation to Magnolia Road. And so it, it was really cool, just like when I was managing those kind of waves of race anxiety that you experience in the marathon to just be like, okay, there's Frank, we're at practice, I'm running behind Frank, you know. And so I, I can see its benefits uh, from both both the pacemaker side and the uh, athlete side, I guess. Yeah. So what what did um, I'm curious what your your experience with Roots Running Project, which is the name of your team, right, under yeah. um, Dr. Hansen? Mm -hmm. How has your move to there in Boulder? How has that influenced you and your on your running journey? Like, what has that experience been like? Yeah, I mean, moving to Boulder and joining up with Richie, um, is what we call him, changed everything for me, really. I mean, I was not, I had I graduated in 2013, right, um, from college. And so those intervening years, I was running and doing some training, but not at a high level. And so my move to Boulder and my move to the Roots Running Project was really the, the, the mark of me deciding to go all in on this dream and potential that I thought I had in myself um, or potential I thought I had. And so, you know, he was the only coach who answered me when I sent out all those emails in 2015. And so he kind of took a chance on me. I was 
pretty much the first male athlete in the group. Um, it had just started. And so, you know, Richie will tell you that he never really planned on being a professional coach and I never really planned on being a professional athlete, but you know, here we are and, uh, <laughs> kind of our career, our careers have been, you know, hand in hand and we've, I think we've progressed to places that we never expected. And what year did you join him? Uh, 2015 like when I first moved to Boulder, that's why I moved to Boulder. Okay, nice. So you had like the little string and, and we don't have to deep dive into your early career because you talk about that, you know, you've talked about that other places, but I know you had like the string of uh, DNF. I actually saw your tweet. The uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was a recent tweet. Yeah, I think it was because it included the marathon project, but your tweet that had like your breakdown of your marathon uh, history and you had the DNF at um, the 2016 trials and then the you didn't start the New York City I don't know all the details behind that, but then you had this kind of explosive move in 2019 into Chicago, um, running 211. What really like changed in that period of time uh, that propelled you that much forward? Because that's a really big jump uh, from I think it was like 216 right before that. Yeah, and so um, yeah, on just looking at that tweet. It, it probably needs more context that I just didn't really want to provide on on Twitter. Um, there's some mm-hmm. asterisks in there, like you know the 2016 trials. I qualified two weeks before on the very last day in the half marathon, and so I had 10 days to do marathon training before that. Right? I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready, <laughs> and I was just happy to be there. Right? Um, the the did not starts were injuries. Um, 2017 Chicago. I was running 90 miles a week, so. I was starting to get there, but I was also coming off an injury and 216 was a good day. You know, I think I maximized Mm -hmm. my potential on that day. Um, But I just wanted it to show that like you can move to this event and and not have immediate success and you might not even really show your true potential for years, right? And like I wanted to be a marathoner, but something kept popping up because to run a good marathon, you really need like six months to a year of everything kind of going right, you know, to some extent. And I just could not get that year put together. I couldn't get those six months put together until we get to Chicago in 2019. And that was the first marathon that I came into. I almost looked at that as my marathon debut because I was like, okay, now I've got solid training behind me. Like I'm a mature athlete. I was 29 years old at that point. I was like, now I feel mentally, spiritually, and physically ready to take on this like enormous distance and it finally went right. And so I really like in a lot of ways, look at Chicago last year as my first marathon. Yeah. And the interesting part, I I get the physical and the mental side of it, but the spiritual side, I want to ask you really quickly, was that more like belief in yourself that, Hey, I am capable of being one of the best marathoners in the United States. And you had to believe that you were capable of doing that. Even if you had been physically ready for some time, is that what you're getting at with the spiritual side of it? Yeah, for me, for me, spiritual the spiritual side is self belief and just like entering with a calm and like peaceful mind. I'm not a religious person, but um, yeah, so I it was like believing in myself, believing in my ability, but also like you know just recognizing that it, in the grand scheme of things, it's not like it's not maybe as big of a deal as I'm making it out to be, and just trying to like <laughs> enter into the race at peace and just being confident that I was going to do my best no matter what and believing that 
my best was pretty good, <laughs> you know, and so, and uh, that was a big component and probably one that I've struggled with a little bit over the years. Yeah, I've personally struggled with that. I've done four marathons. So, I mean, I've only been running about five years. I have no college background, anything like that. Um, you know, and it, for me, it just kind of started as a way to be healthy, try to reverse some historical family trends and things like that. But I feel like one of my like biggest obstacles is the doubt that I feel on a starting line. Uh, like I, I remember I ran Houston this year and ran like almost a 30 minute PR, but before like the days before I was just so anxious. And so, uh, just, I, I think it was because I knew my fitness was so far ahead of what I had ran in the past, but just so anxious. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know, just unsettled. I had to have several conversations with my coach over the phone, just, you know, trying to calm me down. But, um, is that something, is that, the extent of what you've felt in the past, like that idea that you're, you know, you're capable of something and you're just maybe were a little bit scared to put it out there or was it something completely different? No, there's definitely a component of that. I mean, you know, I ran one of those marathons on that list we talked about it was Rotterdam, which I ran, uh, last year, early last year. And I had a really tough day, ran 219. Um, I was in way much better shape, but I remember in the build up to that race, I was, I was in Europe, um, for like two weeks beforehand by myself and just really kind of let my head spiral out of control. And I'd look at my training log and even though it was better than anything I'd ever done, I, I was like looking for holes in it. Right. I was like, Oh man, did I, I should have run twice this day or, and I really like eroded my own confidence by being like hyper analytical, about what my what I was doing with my training and I, I had high expectations like I, I thought I could run 211.30 that day and um, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to run 211.30 that day I needed to be like validated by that time but you know I was feeling the pressure but then I was also undermining myself and so I, I got to the line already defeated and when the race started going poorly I had absolutely nothing like in reserve to write the ship. And so I walked away from that experience just being like, damn, I cannot do that to myself again. And so, yeah, the story was definitely flipped when I got to the line last weekend. Yeah. So, so I want to talk about that. Uh, we definitely want to hear all about the marathon project and, uh, you know, and what that entailed and, and how your approach was different. But before we do that, I'm just curious, like, how, what kind of effect has 2020 had on you? And I know that's kind of a loaded question and a lot of people, you know, don't want to wallow in self-pity about missed races or things like that. I mean, you know, we, we don't want to complain given what's going on in the world, but at the same time, I think it's totally reasonable because we're all experiencing it to say what kind of effect it's had on us. So, uh, how how has 2020 affected you specifically as it pertains to like running uh, and races and things getting canceled? Were you on were you slated for anything uh, big that you didn't get to do? Um, oh sure, as far I as mean, that's concerned. Yeah, 2020 has been a tough year for everybody. Obviously, I think may, not to like you know for me it's been like especially tough, and it's been a year of like pretty dramatic highs and pretty dramatic lows. I, before COVID even struck, I started the year by missing the U S Olympic trials with an injury. So I didn't get to start that race. Um, I had 
put my I thought I was in the extended conversation of guys who could potentially make the team on a perfect day. Um, so to go to that race as a spectator was really tough for me. Um, so that was one disappointment. Um, I kind of came back. I was going to run the New York City Half Marathon in March. That got canceled. I found out that it was canceled while I was sitting waiting for my MRI appointment to confirm a stress fracture in my femur. And so then I was injured and couldn't run for a while. Um, my relationship was going through a really tough point personally. But then those were all tough. But then it's like, but then Em and I got engaged, dramatic high. Things, you know, were great. And like we rebounded from that. And then I felt like I finally put the final piece on it when I rebounded professionally by having the race this weekend. And so... Yes, very tough year. Um, I went through, yeah, some kind of dark times, but I also had these like pretty dramatic peaks, um, and that's what that was a big motivating factor for me last weekend. Was just like I cannot let this opportunity go to waste. Like I deserve to have a good day for everything that I've been through, and uh, I was lucky. Yeah. Man, I love that message, Noah. And it, it really makes me think. I saw um, a tweet by Sarah Hall, um, and I think it was tied to a New York Times article she had recently where she said, when you fail a lot, your why becomes really strong, right? And that's what happened with you, not just over the course of this last year of 2020, but you, I mean, you tied it all the way back to the beginning of coming out of college and trying to prove yourself and feeling fit going into Rotterdam and other races and not having it happen on that day. Like, your resolve grew from that. And that's why, I mean, not the entire reason, but that's part of the reason why 209 happened uh, this past mm -hmm. weekend was because of all your experiences in the past. In and that's what built you up mentally and spiritually, in addition to the physical fitness that you have built um, primarily, you know, this year with consistent training, but then also built upon the base you've established in the past. So... I, I just, I guess that's not really a question. It's just a statement by me that it's a powerful message for that I know I'm taking to heart myself and my own training and running because I have a very similar background to you in terms of PRs and times, um, but not at the same level you are at now, but maybe from a few years back. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, man. Damn. <laughs> yeah. So then all of this culminated this weekend in the performance i i don't want to put words in your mouth but it's it may be the performance of your lifetime uh so far um and so i'm curious what your headspace was going into that as far as just the very very beginning you know like how you felt uh getting to the starting line given the injuries and the things things of that nature the year that you had all of that i mean i mean were you did you walk to the line thinking i can compete and if i'm not in the front, I'm going to be chasing down the person that's in front of me as hard as I can, giving everything. Like, did you walk into the race knowing that you were able to give that kind of effort? For sure. Yeah. Um, you know, physically, I had the best training block I'd probably ever had, um, which was one benefit of like everything being canceled. I had no races to rush back for, and I was able to progress my training in a really intelligent and slow way to the point where I was healthy and like doing my best work ever. And so train from a training perspective, I was super confident. Um, it, it did kind of bother me a little bit that I hadn't raced in 14 months. And I think a lot of athletes, you know, they understand that racing, you're going to have to go to like a deep place 
that you can't really replicate in training. And if you haven't gone to that place in a while, it's easy to wonder if you can still go there. Right. And so I did have a little bit of a doubt, like, okay, when things get hard, because they will, how am I going to respond? You know? And so that was maybe my only doubt going in, but also, like I said, you know, my talking to my coach and my agent and Emma and everybody before they were just like, this is your day, you know? And that really echoed how I felt internally. Like, I deserve to have a good day and I'm going to fight for a good day and I'm going to do everything I can to like maximize this opportunity because like I've been through some shit this year and I deserve it, <laughs> you know, and I don't approach, I don't approach every race that that way necessarily. Like some days I go out and I'm just like, it'd be nice to run well today. But at the marathon project, I was like, I have to run well today. And also, you know, the race had an explicit goal of going out at 209 pace, right? And so you're either going to do that or you're not. And so you're taking a leap of faith from the beginning, just being like, okay, I'm going to run 209 pace and it's not like it's going to slow down. So I'm going to run 209 pace until I like physically cannot anymore. And, um, and so that was my mentality. I was just going to run until I like physically couldn't. And the other part was like looking at the start list you know, some great, great guys. You had Jared on your last podcast, obviously super talented, Scott Fobble, Martin, but I have beaten all those guys at points in my career and they've beaten me plenty of times too, but there was nobody on that list that I was like, there's no way I'm going to beat him, you know? And so like, I was going to be competitive too. I'm a professional athlete. No, do you think it helped that the decision was very simple for you? Like when you go into like a marathon major or, um, or Rotterdam and you've run Chicago in the past, um, you never really know what the tactics might play out, right? Because there might be some foreign athletes that are going to run way faster than you know you expect to run. And then you're trying to figure out who's going to be around you. But this race, it was like, okay, this is what the pacer's going out at, Frank. Uh the decision is just, do I stick there or do I not? It's like a A or B, yes or no. Did that help you? Um, and really, maybe did it calm your mind before the race that like, I just have to be there for as long as possible? Yeah, for sure. It, it made it just like kind of an all or nothing scenario, which I really thrive under sometimes, you know, it's just like, we're going to run 209 pace, you know, there's no gamesmanship, like, that's what it is, you know, and, and honestly, 209 is probably even a loftier goal than I would have, if someone was like, hey, no, what do you want the pacemakers to be set at? I probably would have said like 209.45 or something like that. And so it was actually even helpful to go out even a little bit over my head, because I think we tend to sometimes want to set more conservative goals for ourselves, especially in the marathon, because 209.45, I mean, that'd be a two minute PR for me, right? And so that would have been cool. But I was kind of forced to live up to the expectations of the event in a way. And, um, and that was cool. I think I really got the most out of myself because of that. Definitely. Definitely. And you see a lot of that at, uh, other events across the country, not to the same extent of running 209, but if you look at like California international marathon, that's known for, uh, or creating a lot of Olympic trials qualifying performances, right? Like the women and men there just get on the train and go. And they, the decision's easy. You're either with that train or you're not. Or the Houston half marathon for men and women that are chasing American and national records or Olympic trials qualifying times. So I'm now I'm starting to see this pattern just across the country and world at races where this type of, it's, it's really a time trial environment is set up and how it produces such fast times. Um, obviously consistent pacing helps with that too. Um, 
We actually have a question from our, our listener, Noah, that uh, you discussed a little bit on the City's Mag podcast, but he wanted to know, like, how much pain were you in trying to hold in the vomit at the end? Um, maybe you can walk us through the story of, of that, because that's really what went, your performance went viral after the race, but the image of you and your neon green throw up coming out right across the finish line is really what hit the social media waves right after. <laughs> yeah, like, like I said before, sometimes it feels a little reductionist, like I do something good, but I'm the beer drinking guy, or I do something good, and now I'm the puke guy, you know, but whatever, people have fun with it. Um, yeah, the, you know, that was, that became a pressing need, uh, maybe, maybe a mile away from the finish. I mean, my stomach never holds up super well to those long aerobic efforts, I guess, but I was holding it together up until a couple miles to go, but, you know, I was definitely doing some hard swallows at mile 25, and I actually puked over my shoulder, you know, with 400 to go, but there was no camera there. Um, yeah, it was tough, but I was really just like, I have to get to the line. Like, I'm not going to, if I stop and throw up for 30 seconds right now, like, I'm not going to let my good day, like, slip away. And so it was obviously uncomfortable um but we do uncomfortable things (laughs) (laughs) that's the difference between 209 and potentially 210 you know for sure so i think you made the right decision yeah and i am lucky that i that i it didn't happen to me earlier because i know like emma bates had some stomach issues and that happened early in her race and then she had to rebound from that and so i never really had to rebound from anything i just had to cope for a little bit I, I think one other lucky thing, too, is that it wasn't the other end where it was coming out, right? <laughs> That's a much harder decision. And uh, Martin yeah. Rare, the guy who won the Marathon Project, he's gone and told his story extensively about the Olympic trials, and he went into a porta potty mid-race and still ran really well. And then my Marathon PR, too, CIM, I stopped at mile 16 to, you know, go number two. <laughs> and I had to catch back, try and catch back up to the lead pack with all those guys. And... Uh, you don't want to be the guy. I mean, th- throwing up and having it run down your singlet, that's okay. Like, pictures look badass of that. <laughs> but having the other stuff run down your leg, I don't think anybody would ever want that picture to be out there. Yeah, I feel, so. very, for- I feel very fortunate to never have been in that situation. That's good. And I thought it was interesting that people were, like, in response to your to one of your tweets they were like dissecting the color and like like trying to figure out what you were eating and stuff like that i'm curious just because just for the sake of knowing like what's your what's your diet like what do you typically eat like before a race and stuff like that is there any do you feel like there's any correlation to the way you eat and your stomach issues that you've had no um, I mean, I wasn't eating anything green, you know, I think that's just like <laughs> stomach bile, but you know, I had oatmeal, I eat oatmeal before every run. And during the race, I was drinking Mart- Morton, um, and flat Coke. And I saw you flat Coke. Yeah. Yeah. I and so, that. uh, yeah, you know, it's just like, I, I think the just physiological reaction to running that fast for that long, your body sends blood away from your digestive system and it and prioritizing your muscles and for me my digestive system just kind of shuts down and so i think i have some work to do in terms of like race day nutrition um but to some extent i just accept it as something that's going to happen well we promise we won't title this episode uh puke guy thank you (laughs) 
No, I, I want to ask really quickly, because the flat Coke, that is just a classic throwback to the 70s and 80s when runners did, there wasn't really Gatorade or Morton or any of these other products that are out there now. Why do you use flat Coke when there are so many other options out there, you know? Yeah, I mean, so really I was only using flat Coke in my last uh, two bottles. And so that would have been like I took one at like 24 miles and 20 miles, something like that. And at that point, there's only 30 minutes and whatever left to run. And so really, you're just looking to get like that caffeine and sugar spike. And that goes into your bloodstream really quick with Coke. And so there's really nothing fancy to be done at that point. Like if you can get a little sugar spike for the last 20 minutes, like that's cool. And I think flat Coke is just a kind of tried and true way to do that. Yeah, and if you like the taste and it works for you, then yeah, it's 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 sugar, just like virtually every other uh, race day supplement you could take during the race. So I have, I have a really quick funny story to tell about my last marathon. I ran the Moab Trail Marathon in November, and um, I had Morton with me. I had a handheld bottle during the race because it took me like three and a half hours to run it. But at mile 23 and a half, I stopped at an aid station, and I was all out of my Morton drink mix and gels. And so I asked them to fill my handheld bottle up with Coke, but it wasn't flat. And oh, so they no. poured they poured the Coke in there. I'm in the middle of a race. I'm I'm top ten at a USA it's a USATF championship race. I want to stay there. And so I screwed my top on real quick. And then all of a sudden I have my handheld in my hand. I feel it start like expanding on me. And then I have to <laughs> I have to put it in my mouth like every three seconds to let the air out. And then I got it in my mouth. It was so sticky, it exploded all over my face. It was a horrible idea. So I don't know. I guess the moral of the story that is keep it flat in terms of Coke. <laughs> don't try anything new on race day. It, it didn't work for me. Uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> flat uh, is really an imperative part of the uh, equation. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that's what it takes to be an elite, though, I'm never going to be able to do it because uh, <laughs> I hate flat Coke pop, as they call it up north. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I can't stand it, but uh, that's crazy. But bonking is always worse. True. Very yeah, true. That's painful. I, I guess it is relative for sure. Well, uh, we do have some other questions that some a few folks submitted. But I, I wanted to ask you first uh, just a question. You may have heard me ask Jared, and I've asked uh, some of our other guests. But um, I'm curious with all that's going on, you know, all that's going on in the world and how things have gone this year. We've already talked about the ups and downs and, you know, just everybody's kind of dealing with it uh, differently. But I'm curious what you're seeing that's inspiring you, um, whether it was, you know, Marty running, sprinting to the finish line, something simple like that, or not simple, but something uh, basic like that, where, you know, a couple people went under 210, uh, or if it's something else going on, what are you, what are you drawing inspiration from right now in this interesting year? Well, Marty's sprinting away from me in the last mile. I'm not sure I would call that inspiring in the moment. <laughs> but uh, right. no, uh, yeah, the results of the race, I mean, are, are obviously very inspiring to see how deep American distance running is and can be because, you know, there were what, however many guys who went under 210, but there was a lot of guys sitting at home who know they could have been there too. And so I think a lot of people are going to be inspired by those results. Um, personally, you know, I, I consume a lot of, you know, like athletic content. I guess that's inspiring to me. I've been getting more into following triathlons um, because my buddies, uh, Morgan Pearson and Matt McElroy, 
have been training really hard. And so I follow their stuff. Um, yeah. And so athletically, like I'm always watching my friends train and seeing what they're overcoming and what they're doing. And that's always really fun for me. Um, I'm also just, you know, inspired by kind of random acts of kindness. It's been really easy to like, just get sucked into doom scrolling this year, you know, and seeing everything that was going on in terms of, you know, the, the pandemic and, um, the fight for social justice and equality. Um, and you definitely saw the worst in a lot of people in those scenarios, but you also saw the best in a lot of people in those mm -hmm. scenarios. And so there, there was a lot of inspiration that I took from that, that fight for social justice and that, that fight to like protect each other in the pandemic. And, uh, so I care, I'll carry that stuff with me for sure. Yeah. And, and interesting on that, because I mentioned I was in Boulder, it was, it was very, to me, very interesting how different, um, that area was in comparison to we're in San Antonio. <clears throat> and not that San Antonio is inherently bad, but you have, you know, I, I guess I, I don't really want to, I don't want to like throw shade at no, <laughs> San it, Antonio, it, but, but uh, w w what I'm getting at is there was a very clear, like we're in this together uh, environment or feeling in Boulder where like, you know, it was people were wearing masks and they weren't, uh, it wasn't like a, a, a demoralizing thing, you know, and and even you could almost feel like the smiles through the mask, too. Whereas here you ha you can f you can easily pinpoint uh, people that are annoyed and people that are, uh, you know, just doing things out of necessity. Um, and so it was very interesting to be in that environment and kind of pull myself out of Texas and and see how other people are doing it in other parts of the country. Um, so yeah, I totally get that, what you were saying about uh, about that feeling of protecting each other, especially where you are. All right, so Noah, we have a few uh, questions that were submitted on Instagram from some of our listeners that we definitely want to hit on. And a lot of them are very quick hitting, so you don't have to dive deep into any of them. Just like quick, boom, 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 uh, knock them out. I don't even want you to think, just whatever comes to your mind first, okay? dangerous. <laughs> yeah, okay, here we go. Last time you got a haircut. Like a real haircut? Um, 2015. Yeah, like, but yeah, last time I like went somewhere and paid to get my haircut would have been probably five years ago. Man, that's awesome. And by the way, you don't I mean we're on we're on video right now recording this. Your mustache is gone, it looks like. I know. I was I was gonna say that you were gonna have to say something specific that to make people know that it's you because if someone watches this, they're not gonna they're gonna be like, Oh, they just had a Noah Girardi look alike on the podcast. Yeah, the, the facial hair life cycle for me usually goes growing the beard out during training cutting it down to the mustache for the race and then a uh, clean slate afterwards. And we start over again. Oh, I love the metaphor with that. Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> if I could, if I could grow any facial hair, this is like a month of growth. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Noah. thanks for the vote of confidence. Yeah. Hey, no, this, this is uh this is 32 years old and probably haven't grown uh, shaved in like four days. You guys are very handsome men, both of you. <laughs> Thank you. Drew Bean wants to know what product do you use to keep your stash looking so fly? That was a direct quote. <laughs> um, traditionally nothing, but Emma just got me some like beard oil for Christmas. So I'm looking forward to experimenting with that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, 
some of these questions are silly. How did training shift uh, for you from college to professional as far as like uh, just the in general, the shift in training, um, whether it's mileage or team environment, things of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure there's a general way to answer that question because kind of everything changed. But I guess to try to give you a quick hit answer, you know, I'm running 100 to 110 miles a week now. In college, I was running 60 to 70 you know, so roughly half of the mm. training load I'm doing now. But, you know, I'm a full-time athlete now living at altitude. And so I can do things that I couldn't do in college in terms of workout volume and workout load and just being a more mature person and athlete. You know, yeah. my lifestyle is more conducive to training hard. And so, yeah, um, pretty much everything has, <laughs> has changed. Um, yeah by nature of just increasing volume and intensity and just being like a more dedicated athlete. And how many like teammates do you have locally that you train with on a regular basis? Yeah. The roots running project. And in terms of the guys side, there are uh, five, six of us. Um, and so, you know, three of us ran the marathon project last weekend and so we did all of our build up together plus another teammate will cross did the build up with us and so you know and then i can do faster stuff with frank when that overlaps um or my teammate austin and so yeah i do have a variety of teammates and so i can do fast stuff with some of them long sustained stuff with some of them that's been huge for me um, because it's in high school, definitely, but also in college, I was kind of a lone wolf at the, at the sharp end of the spear. I didn't really have anybody to push me on a daily basis and, and now I do. And so that, that's been really fun. That's awesome. Um, and so Ryan had one, uh, final question for you as well. Yeah. You know, I just want to know, Noah, what, what legacy do you want to leave, right? Like when, when people look back on Noah Drotti and um, his running career, um, and you know this can be family and friends or even just the casual people out there all across the world, what do you want them to uh, remember um, about you and be inspired by? Yeah, I mean, I don't expect many people to really be thinking about me in 10 years. Uh, first of all, like I don't know that I've had that kind of impact um and nothing i do really has the like explicit purpose of inspiring others but it is nice to sometimes hear that people find resonance in my story and if, i think if there is anything to be taken away from my story that can be uh universally applied that you don't you don't have to be the high school state champ to pursue running to its fullest. I mean, I never ran the state meet in high school. I never won a national championship in division three, but I did have this, this self-belief and this determination to explore the outermost potential of my running. And I didn't know where that potential ended up. It could have ended when I qualified for the marathon trials for the first time. Like, and if that's as good as I ever got, like I could have looked back on that and been satisfied, but I have been really fortunate in that the potential I imagined is actually in me, right? And so I've been lucky to see this as far as I've seen it, but you, you're not lim you shouldn't be limited by what you've done in the past. If you only ran 10 minutes, 10.30 for the two mile in high school, that doesn't mean you can't go on to be a great marathoner. And I think a lot of people 
they limit what they can do in the future based on what they've done in the past. And, and I've never really done that. And so I think if there is something that can be taken away, it's, it's that. Yeah. I, I love that message. And, you know, even if people don't remember Noah Drotty as the driving force, like the person they remember over the last 30, 40 years, you can all, you can definitely play a, a small but significant part in people's running journeys um, and being inspired, whether that's in the moment for multiple years for their lifetime. I think we never really know who we're reaching and touching, especially through in the social media age. You know what I mean? And I just want to throw this out there, Noah, that like I, I'm inspired by you, but I'm also inspired by guys in the past. Like I think of Brian Sells, um, and obviously he made the Olympic team, but really a, a true blue collar runner. Um, you can look him up on the internet. I won't go into his entire story, but yeah. I mean, that guy was doing it 20 years ago and I still, I still think about him and am inspired by what he did. So don't discount your, your story and yourself. Like you inspire so many people out there, Noah, and we're just so thankful that you took the time to chat with us today. Yeah, Thanks, and, Ryan. That, uh, that means a lot to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's perfect. And and me personally, everything that you said about, you know, kind of the difficult times and breaking those mental uh, kind of barriers, uh, they hit home with me because I go through it too. So, man, we greatly, greatly appreciate you uh, joining us. I know you probably get uh, uh, podcast requests all the time and, and you have your own uh, uh, refresh. I, I don't know if you said it earlier. What is the what is your podcast called? Yeah, I uh, co-host a podcast with my one of my college teammates called D3 Glory Days. So if anyone wants to hear about some Division Three cross-country greats, they can check that out. D3 Glory Days. So check that out uh, wherever you get your podcast. But we really appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much. Uh, maybe we'll talk again sometime in the future. Um, but other, until then, yeah, keep doing what you're yeah. doing. It's awesome. We're inspired. <laughs> Yeah, thanks guys for having me on and looking forward to seeing how your uh, young podcast continues to develop. Thank you. Thanks, Noah. Thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, please subscribe and share this episode if you enjoyed it. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you all again soon.